0: Welcome to Episode 35 of Justice with John Carpe, the podcast from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms. I'm the show's producer, Kevin Steele, and I'm here with our host, John Carpe, who is the president and founder of the Center. This show, we have a long list of news items we hope to cover, from Quebec postponing their vaccine mandate one month for healthcare workers to, well, this is just one part of a larger story developing around Canada, where public officials are causing a crisis in healthcare with their vaccine mandates. Yeah, they can blame the unvaxxed, but they're going to be the ones remaining, holding the bag, taking the heat when everything goes to heck. And maybe they're starting to realize that. Then there is a dreadful story out of Alberta where public health officials categorized as a COVID death the tragic passing of a 14-year-old boy who had, in fact, died from brain cancer. Plus, there's another story out of our Wild Rose province where the body that governs the nursing profession about how they set up a snitch line. And there's some vaccine news out of the court system in British Columbia. First, John, you wanted to start off by focusing in on a letter, which I haven't seen and so I can't
1: really describe. Why don't you just go ahead and tell us about it? The College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta has sunk to a new low, if that's even possible. Uh, Mm -hmm. This is in regards to a September 20th, 2021 letter to Dr. Verna Yu, or Yu, I don't know how it's pronounced. Uh, This was an open letter to Alberta Health Services uh, about their requirement that all doctors and nurses and presumably all hospital workers, you know, the food services, cleaning, IT, everybody else, this mandate of get vaccinated or lose your job. So this letter is... um, it's it's two pages, and it summarizes some of the concerns, like uh, these mRNA vaccines have not been proven to prevent disease uptake nor disease transmission, and they source that and reference that. Uh, the overall survival rate from uh, COVID is about 99.7%, uh, does vary a bit by age, but even for the over 70 crowd, it's, uh, it's a very high uh, survival rate. Uh, The vaccine is showing weakened efficacy after only a few months. Well, well. Now, Mm. you know, this was still a little bit shocking in September. We were finding out that Israel was demanding you get a third injection to keep your vaccine passport uh, up to date, ready, and valid. So what we're really looking at is uh, injections forever. I mean, this is the the program, right? You're going to have... Your third, your fourth, your fifth, your sixth, your seventh, your eighth, your ninth, your tenth, and every every six to nine months. When the government says so, not when you decide, when the government yeah. says it's time for uh, the herd of, of cattle or sheep to, to get their next shot, that's when you got to get injected. Otherwise, you lose your uh, civil liberties to uh, associate freely with other people at a restaurant or to go to a gym.
0: Well, actually, what you first you lose your status as fully vaccinated that was the interesting thing. They changed the definition of fully vaccinated. Yeah. So that was uh that's an important thing. Because a lot of people are citing stats. Oh, you know, it's the not fully vaccinated that are in the hospitals. Well, yeah, but they've already had two, you know. So I mean they're vaccinated, aren't they?
1: No, no, not yet. No, Anyways. it's a, it's a moving target. Also, yeah. all of the vaccine injured people are being Jot it down for, for medical records purposes as unvaccinated because you're not fully vaccinated until, uh, depending on province, one or two or three weeks after your second injection. So you could have one shot and get really sick because of that vaccination, go into hospital. Oh, now you're part of this uh, scary, unvaccinated minority that the politicians are fear mongering about. You could get sick after your second shot, and you could get so sick and get hospitalized, and now you're part of the stats for the unvaccinated. Right. So the letter points out that the United Kingdom and Israel, two highly vaccinated countries, have extremely high percentages of hospitalized patients being fully vaccinated. Historically, scientific consensus has been that natural immunity is superior to vaccine immunity, Again, even if that's not true, but if it's just debatable, I mean, isn't that already a good reason not to force people into uh, trying an experimental substance that has not been subjected to any long-term safety testing? And then they go through the uh, vaccine adverse the VAERS, vaccine uh, um, adverse effects uh, reporting system data, which is the American Vaccine Injury Database. Uh, And uh, go through the stats there. That there are more people injured and killed by the COVID vaccine in the first eight months than the total number of people injured and killed by all vaccines put together over a period of thirty-one years, uh, which tells you something. So this was that's the letter to the college, right? Okay, this is all the letter to the college, and it was signed by three thousand five hundred and forty-four. Uh, healthcare signatures, uh, mm. uh, amongst whom were seventy three physicians. I mean, how how dare they? These doctors, how dare they disagree with the oh, prevailing <laughs> narrative and, and exercise their own independent thinking? So here is what the college is now doing. There's a letter. I'm gonna. I'm not going to mention the name of the doctor who received this, but it says, "Dear Doctor So and So," and it mentions him by name and it mentions his formal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Alberta registration number, did it October 12th, dear Dr. X, re-open letter to Dr. Verna Yu. The college has been provided with a copy of the open letter to Dr. Verna Yu of Alberta Health Services regarding opposition to mandatory COVID-19 vaccinations for Alberta Health Services employees. You have been identified as being a signatory on this letter, copy of which has been appended. For your awareness, when the college receives such correspondence with the physician's name identified on it, it is our standard practice, I I doubt, I think it's their standard practice as of, you know, the last few weeks, but it is our Mm -hmm. standard practice to maintain a copy on the physician's record. So, warning. Now, the college strikes more fear into the hearts of doctors than Alberta Health Services does, because the college can pull your license to practice medicine entirely, uh, whereas Alberta Health Services ha- does have a lot of power because they we have a government monopoly over healthcare, but there are a, a few small windows here and there where you can opt out of, of Alberta Health Services and still practice medicine, Okay. So Mm. the college is a greater source of authority and a greater source of fear for doctors because the college could actually pull your license. You're no longer a doctor. You're no longer allowed to practice medicine. You're no longer allowed to call yourself a doctor, right? Whereas Alberta Health Services, uh, the worst that they can do to you is say, well, you're you're losing your job, but you still have your license. Maybe you can go to another province. Maybe you can go to another country, Mm. you know, so... We have been made aware that some individuals who are alleged signatories on this letter did not agree to this or were not aware that they were named. And uh, so if you did not agree to be a signatory, then, uh, you know, let us know. and We won't put this in your file, you bad, bad boy. How dare you question the narrative? Okay. So this is pretty slimy on the part of the college. It's more inter- intimidation. And mm-hmm. the, the prohibition on prescribing ivermectin which has uh, reduced the and almost destroyed the influence of COVID in, the, in India, in, in the Indian states that have used it, in particular, uh, Uttar Pradesh, uh, 240 million people, one of the largest states or the largest state in India. They use ivermectin. It's cheap and it's effective. It saves lives. It keeps people out of hospitals. And now we've got the college aggressively, making it illegal for doctors to prescribe ivermectin for COVID. And I have to research this more, but my information as of right now is that this is the first time in history that a college has jumped into interfering with the doctor-patient relationship. And it's not uncommon. uh, According to Dr. Nagase, who we talked about last week, who is speaking publicly, Mm -hmm. Uh, there was a video... Uh, interview with him on the website of the the Western Standard. And he says it is entirely normal for doctors to prescribe medications for things that they were not originally intended for. And he gives the example of aspirin, that uh, aspirin was originally for headaches, had nothing to do with heart ailments. But now after you've had a heart attack, doctors will prescribe aspirin as a blood thinner. So this is off-label, meaning that... Have you heard the latest on this, though? Tell me. Okay.
0: Well, a study, I think it came out of Israel, found that uh, aspirin actually reduced the symptoms of COVID in the lungs. And almost immediately after that, uh, some American medical association decided that aspirin is no, should no longer be prescribed for elderly people for, uh, as a blood thinner. It mm-hmm. uh, it doesn't help. So uh, there you go. <laughs> it's, it's just a coincidence, I'm sure. You know, as soon as they find out it may actually help with COVID, all of a sudden they're telling everybody to stop taking it. I don't know. That sounds a little suspicious, but... Uh, I would
1: anyways. have more respect, and I, I apologize if I said this last week, but I, I would have more respect for these government uh, assertions about ivermectin not working if they actually explained why all of these uh, medical reports and scientific studies, many of them peer reviewed, why these should not be trusted and relied upon. So if a government website said, look, uh, we know that there's a lot of rumors coming out of uh, India that ivermectin has been uh, very successfully used to treat COVID in India and save thousands of lives. Uh, Here's why those rumors are false. It's because those reports are they're not scientific, they're not, uh, they didn't use a proper methodology, their sample size was too small, uh, they didn't have a proper control group, they're not peer-reviewed. There could be any number of reasons why a uh, report claiming to be a medical or scientific report is not valid. Could be any number of reasons. If the government's actually said, here's why the pro ivermextin studies are junk science, and here are our studies showing you know, you are with a like a large person's a proper scientific study and a, a very large uh, number of participants, and here's our study showing that ivermectin was totally unhelpful because we had, you know. We had 2,000 patients and 1,000 got ivermectin and 1,000 did not. And the two patient groups were quite equal in terms of their uh, age and, you know, and gender and race and socioeconomic status. So we had two very similar groups of of 1,000 people. We did the research. We gave out ivermectin. And you know what? The same number of COVID deaths in both groups. That's our study. If the government came out with that, I could respect that. But what you get instead from governments and from government bodies, from Health Canada, from Alberta Health, uh, from the, the the college, what you get instead is this very short blanket statement saying uh, there is no evidence that uh, ivermectin is helpful in treating COVID.
0: Oh yeah, that's there's actually an article in the Edmonton Journal today by I would say what I would call the usual suspects in Alberta about this very topic. What I liked, I, I didn't read it at all because I just found it moments before getting on with you. But uh, what I liked about it was it uh, the headline was something to the effect was, well, ivermectin actually is a useful medication... Just not with COVID. Just not so there with was a, COVID. Yeah, well, no, but there's a real climb down now. Uh, before, of course, you know, CBC and all these It was just a horse dewormer. Horse paste, yeah, that was it, you know. And and then, of course, the whole thing with Joe Rogan blew up, uh, where he was prescribed it by his doctor. And then he confronted uh, the CNN resident doctor about it and uh, he forced him to admit that it was a, an effective medication, Anyways, yeah, it, it became pretty much international news at that point. And so obviously they're going to have to admit that it's not horse pace, that it actually is. It won the Nobel Prize in 2015, et cetera, et cetera. But apparently in Alberta, it's not effective for COVID. So-
1: well, this is this is what's been so wrong with the government's approach to, to COVID in the past year and six months, year and seven months. They say all the time – you know, we're basing this on science. We're the scientists. This is scientific. If you disagree with us, you're anti-science. And yet, they don't come up with the science. They have, you know, you go to Alberta. You, 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 I, I don't know about every uh, government website in in the world, but the the ones that I've been on, the governments don't list what reports that mm-hmm. uh, that, that they're relying on. And then when you get to ivermectin, governments don't list what research they rely on for their own conclusion on uh, uh, why they believe that uh, ivermectin should not be prescribed, or, or worse yet, why we have to hunt down and discipline and prosecute any doctor who prescribes ivermectin. They don't say what studies they rely on. You just get this very simplistic short assertion saying there is no evidence that ivermectin is effective against COVID, period. And it stops right there. And it's the same, the CDC, Food and Drug Administration, one short statement, there is no evidence to show that ivermectin uh, treats COVID effectively. And that's it. Well, that's not true. There is evidence. And if the governments disagree with it, uh, and if they're intellectually honest, and if they believe in science, then they will explain uh, why. Uh, They will explain what scientific research they rely on. Now, this is particularly one of the recipients of the college's, you know, warning letter saying, hey, we noticed that you're one of the 73 physicians that's, that signed this um, uh, September 20th letter to Dr. Verna Yu. Is, it, it is intimidation. You know, we're going to put this in your file. And uh, in in one case, this was sent to one of the doctor's who is a witness in a court action in Alberta. So this is witness intimidation. And we shall be writing to the college about this uh, because it's highly inappropriate when the issues before the court include things like uh, the vaccine mandate and whether it's necessary and whether unvaccinated people spread the virus more than the vaccinated uh, and whether COVID can be treated with ivermectin. I mean, these are all issues before the court. And now you've got well, the, the college intimidating witnesses in legal proceedings. That's disgraceful. Well, isn't, you know, if
0: somebody's taking the province to court and the, they're threatening their job with a vaccine mandate, isn't that witness intimidation? Or am I getting a little too broad with it here?
1: It's a fair point. I would say I mean this this particular court action was launched in December of 2020 after eight or nine months of lockdowns mm. and you know we were going to cross examine Alberta's chief medical officer Dr. Dina Hinshaw that. who who was uh suddenly became unavailable on September the 15th when Jason Kenney, having repeatedly said that we would never have vaccine passports in Alberta, announced that we would have vaccine passports in Alberta. And then the Alberta government lawyers went to court and said, Dear Dr. Dina can't possibly be cross-examined about her charter-violating policies in late September because Albertans desperately depend on her to be working uh, five days a week to save lives I guess the poor woman doesn't have any staff or, or deputies uh, or other senior officials to help her out. So, Isn't Dina can possibly. A deputy?
0: <laughs> Sorry, as, I, as I've
1: said in the past, it's it's <laughs> pre- Premier Henshaw and her lovely assistant Jason. Yes, um... that's what my joke was based on. <laughs> so we can't possibly have Doctor Dina uh, take three or four days off work to answer questions about the. Uh, the harm and damage that she's been inflicting on Alberta in the past year and six months because she's just too important and too valuable, busy saving lives, cannot take three days off work. And then uh, after getting an adjournment of the court hearing, uh, we find out she's uh, she was going to go on holidays. I assume she did during those same days that she was supposed to be in court answering questions. Now, in terms of intimidating witnesses, um, I would say that Alberta Health Services coming up with this mandate—it's more bad policy. It's a new bad policy. I wouldn't go so far as to say that Alberta Health Services is intimidating witnesses, Uh, Mm -hmm. but here the college is what they're doing. They might when they sent they sent out the same letter, I'm sure, to all 73 doctors who signed this. Telling them that, oh, we're going to put this in your file. You've been a bad boy or a bad girl. I don't think that college was was knowingly thinking that they were intimidating witnesses uh, in court proceedings with, by, by threatening disciplinary measures for people exercising their free speech rights. But that is the effect of it. Okay. Whether it's the intention or not, probably not the intention. Okay.
0: Uh, speaking of intimidation, there was this other thing that just came out regarding the nurses in Alberta. There's a think link now as There's well. Think link. A think link. Yes. You can report uh, uh, any colleague who has wrong think regarding COVID. Isn't that what the way I'm reading this? It was a story yes. in the Western Standard. Yeah.
1: Linda Slobodian in the Western Standard, uh, she says, Mother Russia would beam with pride, as will her comrades running this spy scheme at the College and Association of Registered Nurses of Alberta. Karna and Linda Slobodian writes, Be good little workers and rat out fellow nurses. It's your duty to report them to the authorities immediately if you decide they're spreading misinformation about the COVID-19 vaccine. Yes. We used to call it heresy uh, in the Middle right. Ages. Now it's called misinformation. If you dare to question the, uh, the prevailing narrative now, and it's misinformation or disinformation. And it's very clever, you know, because what the government is, is pushing for is, is that uh, misinformation and disinformation be punishable, ignoring the whole point that who gets to decide what is or is not disinformation or misinformation, is that the government- Well, we know or is what they think. The <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. They think it's them. You know, they, they have an exclusive on information, so.
1: So right below the, so on the CARNA website, it says, what should I do if we know that nurses are spreading misinformation about the COVID-19 vaccine? And the answer provided by the uh, College and Association of Registered Nurses of Alberta is- Quote, spreading misinformation and disinformation about vaccinations is in direct contravention of Karna's code of ethics and standard of practice. Failure to abide by the code of ethics and standard of practice is considered unprofessional conduct, may be the subject to a formal complaint investigation and professional discipline. And then you can register a complaint. So it's the same You know, uh, anti-science, we're going to intimidate you if you don't buy into uh, what we have declared to be true, Uh, things like COVID is as bad as the Spanish flu of 1918, and we should all live in fear, and everybody's in danger, and lockdowns are really helpful, and there is no treatment for COVID other than lockdowns and vaccinations, and unvaccinated
0: people- Put in there. experimental vaccinations
1: these at kevin these are safe and effective how dare you say that they're experimental you mean just because they haven't been subjected to any long-term safety testing you're calling them experimental that could be it <laughs> i don't know so yeah uh, it's a bad tendency all around so the nurses are in on it Mm-hmm. Uh, which reminds me, the BC nurses are. We're representing a nurse who is being disciplined by the BC Nurses College over putting a I love J.K. Rowling billboard. Oh, yeah. right, this is yeah. a few months ago. And so this was in the wake of J.K. Rowling, the author of the Harry Potter books, so very famous woman. And she made some politically incorrect comment about how. I don't know, biological males shouldn't be allowed into female sports. or uh, Women deserve their own all-female sports that excludes biological males or something to that effect. Mm. And, of course, was roundly denounced uh, around the world for this heresy. By the woksters. Oh By my. the Wilksters. Yeah. And so this nurse... Who uh, claimed to be the majority, but they're not. Either single-handedly or with other people. I I don't know if she paid for the whole thing herself. I gather it wasn't cheap, but she had a billboard that said... I heart, like I love, I heart J.K. Rowling, and somebody found out that this nurse had paid for this billboard and filed a complaint with the Nursing Association. So I'll keep you posted as this case progresses, but it just reminds me of the COVID situation where you've got, this is the government authority, the government body declares what the truth is, and then goes out to punish you if you... Depart from the truth. Right. So whether so, it's you know agreeing with J.K. Rowling that women's sports should be reserved for biological females or whether it's questioning the narrative on COVID and lockdowns and vaccines, there's not a thing of, of saying, well, you're wrong and here's why you're, you're wrong. I'm going to explain to you why you're wrong and let's continue the debate because debate educates everybody. When everybody thinks alike, nobody thinks very much.
0: Yes, but, you know, this is all part of the re-education of the world so that we all follow
1: along on part the same of the, Part of the re-education activities is is um, Dr. Dina Hinshaw lying to the people oh, of Alberta yeah. by saying that uh, 14-year-old Nathanael Spitzer. Nathaniel, uh, yeah. Nathaniel, uh, 14 years old. He died on October the 8th. extend my condolences to the the family. It's a cliche, but it's true to say that that's every parent's worst nightmare is that your own child would die. And uh, so these parents had to uh, go through that because their 14-year-old died of brain cancer. And yet on Tuesday, October the 12th, Dina Hinshaw at a news conference said that, you know, there. Uh, Thirty people had had died of COVID in the past uh, month or the past whatever time period. Or it was a
0: weekend or something like that. So yeah,
1: and amongst them was a fourteen year old had died of COVID, and he did have uh, pre existing conditions. Uh, yeah, he had terminal brain cancer. So, yeah, he was he was in palliative care. I mean, and he was in like palliative it, care. Yeah. This has been the practice with COVID in the past year and and six months. People that are in palliative care right, in um, hospices. And yes, occasionally miracles happen and people do come out of hospices alive, but very, very, very rare. If you're in a hospice, it's because the doctors have said you are going to die shortly, within the next few days, weeks. Maybe you might last a month or two, but you're going to die. We're not going to try to cure you to make you better, but we're going to give you palliative care, which is to alleviate your pain. We're going to make you comfortable. And a hospice is where people go to die. But with the PCR test, you can get a 90% positive rate. And just about every every province in Canada refuses to divulge uh, readily how many cycles they're using on the PCR test. If you use more than 40 cycles... Which Jason Kenney admitted to in respect of Alberta on a video clip uh, with some Christmas address. I guess it was Christmas 2020. If you use more than 40 cycles, you're going to get 90%. Everybody has COVID uh, because it'll pick up some remnant that's in your nose uh, when you haven't been sick in six months and suddenly you've tested positive for COVID. So in the nursing homes, they put people through the COVID test and, you know, everybody, a lot of people test positive for COVID when you use the PCR test. They're not sick with COVID. They're sick with other things. And uh, this has been going on for a year and six months. And here we see it again. Uh, The chief medical officer lying to the people of Alberta by saying that a 14-year-old, and this is part of their narrative, is that we should all be afraid. And it's a lie. You should be afraid of COVID if you are over 70 or especially if you're over 80, you're in a nursing home, you've got... Uh, one or two or three serious health conditions: cancer, emphysema, heart disease, uh, you know, kidney disease, diabetes, what have you. If you're old and sick, then you should take uh, do whatever you can to not get COVID because it's likely to shorten your life. But. It's a big lie to suggest that that anybody under uh, that that the population under seventy, the people outside of nursing homes, are threatened by COVID. And here you have these filthy media and a dishonest because she didn't do her due diligence on this. She could have figured this out before proclaiming it to the whole world. We have uh, the chief medical officer giving false information to Albertans. False information that, with a little bit of due diligence, a little bit of research, a little bit of investigation, uh, she could have known better. And yet, she gave yes, false information.
0: This would have been the youngest person to die of COVID in Alberta. That was the thing. And uh, I just, uh, I guess we should give kudos to the young man's a sister who tweeted out that this was fake news. She was very forceful in her statement that this was untrue, and that's really what caused them to climb down because, of course – and I have to say this. I know it's it sounds political, but uh, there was a story in the Western Standard about this. The NDP opposition jumped all over this before – the uh, sister tweeted out that this was fake news, and uh, there's just a series of tweets from all these different NDP, including Rachel Notley, the leader, talking about how horrible, you know, this disease is and how we all need to be more aware, et cetera, et cetera. So they would be making political hay out of this as fast as they could. And, uh, yeah, thankfully, the sister shut it down. Uh, I, that was great, uh, you know, that uh, – you know, I'm
1: glad his sister had the courage to, to yeah. do that, and and kudos to her. And and what a what a horrible thing to have to engage in when you're you're mourning the loss of a close family member who just died, especially somebody. Again, and I've said this many times, I, I don't minimize the pain and suffering that results from an older person dying. Well, in fact, a death in my own family three days ago. Uh, my uh, one of my aunts. It's actually my favorite aunt uh, died of cancer at the age of eighty four, and and that's also sad, and and yet there's something especially egregious about younger people dying. If, if oh, you get yeah. what I mean, it's, you know, it feels it just feels it just feels worse. Mm. Uh, again, without minimizing the pain of, of of people suffering the the deaths of of, of older people as well. But so you, your fourteen year old brother dies, and now you got to. You got to go to the media and correct the the chief medical officer and uh, and, and shame on the, uh, the politicians that they were outraged that pre-existing conditions were mentioned. This is back oh, to yeah, the intellectual dishonesty, yeah. right? Because yeah. they're pushing this narrative that some uh, young, strong, healthy, able-bodied 20 year old, 40 year old 60 year old should be living in fear of COVID because this could happen to anybody, right? That's yeah. their false narrative. Jason Kenney has said it in the past, everybody should be afraid of COVID. This is not just the disease that is a threat to older people. And yet the government data makes it very clear, 95% of the people dying with COVID, not necessarily of it, but 95% of people dying with COVID are over 60, uh, more than two-thirds are over 70, more than half are over 80 and COVID is not having an impact on population life expectancy. There's no jurisdiction in the world, to my knowledge. And if somebody wants to point one out to me, uh, send an email to info at jccf.ca and put in the subject line for John, uh, example of jurisdiction uh, where death rates actually increased. <laughs> mm-hmm. But there's been no jurisdiction in the world, no country, no province, no state where you've had a significant jump in deaths in 2020 over 2019, which proves that COVID is is not the Spanish flu of 1918. It is in the range of a bad annual flu. It has no impact on life expectancy because uh, as with the annual flu, the victims of it are the people who are in nursing homes who are already uh, three, six, nine, twelve 12 months away from death in any event. Uh, except that the annual flu did kill people uh, under the age of five, whereas right. COVID is not doing that.
0: I just want to say one last word on this, Nathaniel Spitzer, a situation, the young man that uh, died of cancer. It felt to me like this sister's tweet, this blast she sent at the the health officer and the media, it felt like a turning point. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to say. I've keep hoping for turning points here, but this one seemed a little bit significant because I mean, it was just so heart wrenching and so on point. Uh, At least it's going to be a turning point for some people. They're going to suddenly see that perhaps everything that we've been saying regarding the juking of the stats might be true. You know what I mean? So there's that. It it certainly is going to cast a long shadow at any rate, if not a turning point.
1: Well, we have, you know, the same misrepresentation. We see it again if if, uh, if Dina Hinshaw, and I don't have the stats, I don't have the exact quote in front of me, but if if, if she did say that there were, you know, 30 deaths recently or 30 deaths over the weekend uh, or 30 deaths, yeah, in the past week, well, what about the other 470 people that died in Alberta? Never, ever, ever does... Yes, yes, she has made... She, she has on one occasion, she said, you know, every, every death is sad, including the non-COVID deaths. She said that once. But yet when she grandstands at these news conferences, it's always the 30 COVID deaths in the past week. She never says the simple fact that it's normal in Alberta, sad but normal, that in Alberta every week over 500 people die because we get 27,000 deaths per year. And so they mentioned the COVID death, 30 COVID deaths, booga, 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 scary, scary, scary. But nothing about the other uh, 470 or more than 470 deaths of of people from the usual suspects, cancer, heart disease, stroke, car accidents, suicides, all these other causes of death.
0: I remember when we started to suspect something was wrong. And that was last year when we started hearing from people that, you know, they were being pressured into describing their… Relative's death as COVID, you know, and mm. and it was
1: from Jerry something Dunham. else. Jerry yeah. Dunham, that his, was the one, yeah. uh, you know, who needed uh, life-saving pacemaker surgery because his heart, it. his heart was was uh, functioning at twenty-five percent capacity. Mm-hmm. Dina Hinshaw and Jason Kenny deemed that to be non-essential. He very predictably had a heart attack and. Uh, unfortunately, by the time the paramedics arrived and and came and took him to the hospital, he was dead on arrival, horrific suffering uh, for his two young daughters. And then one of the nurses says, should we write this down as a COVID death? Which tells you everything about the culture that's in place in hospitals. And we've heard this repeatedly from so many sources. There's this huge pressure. Everything's got to get listed as 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 a COVID death. And interestingly enough, uh, Dina Hinshaw, when she recanted, now her apology, to her credit, she did apologize to the family for saying that when you're grieving the loss of a loved one, the last thing you want to have to do is is talk about the circumstances of death.
0: I don't so give her much credit. So to her credit, I won't well,
1: th- yeah. let me get to that. Okay. To her credit, she apologized to the family for inflicting the suffering on the family. So that's to her credit. That was good. She did not apologize to Albertans for providing Albertans with false information.
0: Yes, okay. And that is That's significant. A, she right, should apologize
1: okay. to Albertans for get providing okay. false information to the public that she could have with just a little bit of due diligence could have known to be false. Mm, okay. And this is, again, this is as as government. This isn't just, you know, uh, some private citizen accidentally... Uh, you know, giving out a piece of, of information. This is supposed to be the truth. When a mm-hmm. government official goes to the news, goes up to the the microphone at the news conference, and says that thirty people have died of COVID, uh when well, you've got people, you've got the government now giving out false information, demonstrably false. And you say, oh well, that's only one case. Well, how many? How many other cases? I mean, how do you know? Uh, how do you know who these other thirty people are? It's only because she highlighted that she said there was a fourteen-year-old with yeah. pre-existing conditions. But in the past year and a half, all of these news conferences where they've said uh, that, that so many people died with COVID.
0: Uh, well, actually, I have a friend who looks it all up when they report them, and because Alberta does report the ages of this, and they're still all most in their eighties, seventies. You know, some of their nineties. The average age is still eighty. Uh, so, yeah. It's uh, definitely a threat to the to the elderly, but uh, very, very little threat to anybody else. Speaking of false false information, we never discussed this. I just want to put it on the record and it's a story from uh, September end of September there where BC was reporting the false numbers they were underreporting the number of covid cases this was uh, unusual but it seemed to coincide at the same time that alberta was being hammered as causing a horrific increase bc is underreporting and they got caught out doing it and uh, the story lasted i think a day you know so i mean yeah it was just i mean and you know you see now the popularity of the premiers. Horgan is listed as the most popular premier in Canada. Well, yeah, maybe because they were lying about their numbers, but that's uh, just another government lie. Anyways, speaking of government lies, what about those vaccine mandates? (laughs) Yeah, we've got uh, just the peg for mentioning it is, of course, uh, the uh, Quebec just uh, rolled back their mandate by a month because they're worried of shortages. But this has been reported on over the last month, the fact that these mandates could cause a serious collapse of our public health system. I, I know you wanted to highlight something in Ontario. Uh, well, it was, the, it
1: was, it was hilarious. I mean, the, the, this whole situation is so sad. If you've got something to laugh at, try and laugh at it. Dr. Kieran Moore, one of the top uh, uh, Ontario health doctors, um Chief medical officers says that uh, refers to the unintended consequences oh, of staff yeah. shortages. Unintended consequences. <laughs> unintended consequences, consequences. <laughs> I mean. When, when the Japanese bombed Pearl, Har- Pearl Harbor, did they they think that the bombs were not going to destroy the ships? Like, what <laughs> unintended consequences. Oh, we fired a bunch of people. Now we don't have a lot of people. And now we we have, few. you know, <laughs> isn't it amazing that when you fire people, then like you have fewer people there to look after patients. That's not what we intended, though. That, we didn't it? intend for that to happen. No way. <laughs> We just
0: intended to force people to see the truth. That's all. And if they didn't see it, we
1: didn't intend for them to quit. Okay. Yeah. So one of the long-term care homes in Ontario, their staff were down by 36%. I mean, there's a lot of businesses and institutions where even a 5% reduction in staff can, can have, depending on the institution and how it's run and whatever, but even a 5%, 10% reduction in staff can have a huge impact, right? And I oh, hear yeah. a long, long-term care home, 36% staff reduction because they're threatening. Uh, Ontario is threatening people with the uh, uh, loss of employment. Uh, there's another report, a, a hospital in Windsor, in Ontario, Windsor, Ontario fired 57 people
0: yeah, well, see, what happens is people get upset, they get threatened, they get upset, they quit. The people that remain have to work harder, they get upset, they quit. So it's a domino effect, and it's just it could potentially
1: cause a real collapse of the system. Now, now, it's all the fault of the unvaccinated. Even though the vaccine manufacturers never promised that the vaccine would stop the spread, all they promised was that the recipients of the vaccine would suffer... Would still get sick with COVID, by the way, but they yeah. would suffer no symptoms or less severe symptoms than what they would have otherwise. And so I think you can make a case, you know, it, it's a little bit speculative, but you could make mm. a case that the vaccines have saved lives, are saving lives, will save lives. If there's somebody who without the vaccine would have gotten really, really sick and died, but now they got the vaccine, so they got less sick than what they would have otherwise. Okay, that's that's all well and good. That's why it should be a choice. And if you want to take the vaccine uh, for yourself because you feel that the uh, promised benefits are uh, worth the risks, fine, go ahead and do it. But there's no science behind pressuring for the uh, you know with threats of job loss. There's no science behind this blatant bullying of the unvaccinated and falsely characterizing them as a bunch of vile disease spreaders, there's as much science behind that uh, as there is behind the the vilification of any minority anywhere in history. And we humans, sadly, have this nasty tendency to dislike and pick on and vilify and persecute minorities. And sometimes the persecution gets to the point of, of murder and genocide. It usually doesn't. You know, mm. you can have uh, kind of a non-genocidal discrimination, uh, persecution of a minority that can go on for, for a long time. So it doesn't always result in genocide, although every genocide is preceded by the vilification of the minority. Right. Yeah. Whether it's, you know, capitalists in, in countries that have fallen, you know, in Russia, in China, in Cambodia, uh, you know, the minority could be capitalists that were, uh, you know, business people. They're part of the minority that the ideology says is, is, is evil and is responsible for evil. And so it does actually get to the point of genocide, uh, certainly in Germany. Before the full fledged Holocaust was really taking place in 1942, 43, 44, 45, prior to that, you had a decade of Nazi rule with intense daily vilification of the Jews. And I don't think there would have been a Holocaust without there first having been a decade of daily vilification, and not just on a societal level, by individuals in their individual things, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, one person choosing that, you know, that maybe they don't want to have a Jewish doctor or Jewish lawyer go to a Jewish store, you know, that's also despicable bigotry. But it becomes very different when you've got the state apparatus that imposes it on the whole country and effectively kicks the Jews out of the legal profession, kicks them out of the civil service, kicks them out of the universities so they can't be professors, kicks them out of the medical profession, and does this quite aggressively, quite early on, and then worse Mm. and worse and worse. And then you get to the point where in 1938, you get Kristallnacht, the Crystal Night in November 1938, where you have this pogrom of this massive destruction of Jewish businesses where the windows were smashed in, hence Kristallnacht, Crystal Night, or Glass Night, Night of, of Glass, because so many Jewish businesses were smashed in and merchandise stolen. Synagogues were set on fire, and the fire department would show up and would uh, work to prevent the flames from spreading to nearby buildings, but not really make an effort to put out the fire of the synagogue. But let, let's make sure that none of the other buildings get burned, yeah. This is a decade of society going mad, going nuts, and it gets especially wicked and pernicious when you get the government involved. Because that too, the Holocaust was a government-perpetrated genocide. It was not grassroots activism on the part of the citizens. That's right, yeah. It was. It was orchestrated by government. The minority was identified. They had to be registered as such. Everybody, ah, oh yes, government records are needed to facilitate a Holocaust, because the German government had records. It may not have had those records in great numbers in 1933 when Hitler took power, but certainly by 1943, there were abundant records, and the government knew who the Jews were and who the Aryans were, and where the Jews lived, etc., etc., etc. I have all these records. You have the public identification of the minority. They got to wear this big, bright, yellow uh, Star of David with the word Yuda on it. So you got to go out in public with a yellow star that says Jew. So you can't be anonymous.
0: Yeah. It was the the same thing happened in Rwanda. It was the government records that were used to perpetrate the genocide there as well. The colonialists, the Belgium government that was in basically categorized the people into the Hutus and the Tutsis and uh, apparently these records were used uh, to perpetrate the genocide much later in in time so yeah it is definitely a step on the way to genocide
1: I agree for the record I'm not I'm not making any predictions that the current uh, persecution of the unvaccinated the vilification of the unvaccinated the falsehoods spoken out against the unvaccinated. I'm not predicting it's going to lead to a genocide uh, because as I said earlier, that you have, you have uh, lots and lots of examples in history of discrimination against a minority that does not lead to a a genocide. I would say
0: one of the things to watch for uh, because of the conditions created in this society is are the ones who are the most vocal in their, uh, hatred are they promoted? If they start getting promoted, you know that's uh, the time to worry. And I I don't see that yet.
1: So. How do you judge if somebody's vocal in their hatred? I mean, the Quebec Premier well, was you know, I, I saw him up quoted these... as saying the Quebec Premier said publicly at a news conference. He said en français, so the the rough English translation is if I was a patient in a hospital, I would not want to be treated by. An unvaccinated nurse. I would not want an unvaccinated nurse to get within six feet of me if I was a patient in a hospital.
0: Okay, Is that promotion
1: of hatred against the unvaccinated? Is is that hatred?
0: Well, I think so, yeah. I mean, if he continues in his popularity, he goes up in popularity because of things like that, then I say we really got to start worrying. You know, but it's so
1: easy to scapegoat a, a minority, right? We've had, we, and we've already seen this, uh, well, Trudeau during the election saying, you know, those people, and my um, children have a right to life. It's yeah. like, look, if, if, you, if you spent, you know, even two minutes looking at government data, you would know that children are not threatened by COVID. So that's a lie. But that compounded with the other lie that unvaccinated people are going to threaten your children so even if children were seriously threatened by covid that it's the unvaccinated that pose a greater threat than the uh than the vaccinated is a lie and that's very public here in alberta jason Kenney did the same thing we we said he said something like we have uh, we have a serious problem The, the unvaccinated are causing hospital overcrowding right yeah well vaccine injured people are going to hospital and they're being counted as unvaccinated so
0: yeah
1: it's uh it is it is pretty scary, the, yeah. the public vilification. And it's when government gets involved that it gets even more scary. When government gets involved in the persecution. Like you look at the Armenian genocide in 1915 in the Ottoman Empire. That was a government orchestrated murder of hundreds of thousands or more than a million. I don't know the number, but, but huge numbers of people were murdered by government. It wasn't the Turkish... Citizens going out there and killing their Armenian neighbors, mm-hmm. and, or more more specifically, it wasn't the Turkish Muslim citizens killing the Christian Armenian minority citizens, but it was a government orchestrated genocide uh, against that group of people. And so that's what's really creepy is when when government uh, endorses the vilification of the minority. And when laws get passed, this is yeah. very different. This is not, you know, if this was some social prejudice only, what would happen is the vaccinated people would say, you know, we are healthier, we are purer, uh, we have better blood. And um, so we're going to have restaurants for the vaccinated only. Uh, okay, fine. But the unvaccinated people would say, you know what, you're wrong. Uh, We're just as good as you are. We're not worse disease spreaders. And you would have the freedom and you would see restaurants and businesses and stores and gyms. You'd see all kinds of places that welcome everybody. Mm -hmm. You would even see a few places that say we welcome only unvaccinated people, right? Well, there are a
0: few, aren't there? I mean uh, there was a corduroy restaurant out in uh, Kitsilano in
1: Vancouver and uh, they But been, they welcome so it wasn't just open to all it was open only to unvaccinated oh, no, people Oh no no no
0: I don't think okay. it was that no no sorry excuse me I misunderstood you But this sorry. is
1: what I mean this is the difference between a social uh, prejudice of some kind and yep. I I agree I agree with the late George Jonas who wrote that I'm paraphrasing here. It's just a brilliant uh, libertarian columnist. The Justice Centre has named the uh, annual Freedom Award, George Jonas Freedom Award is given out uh, in his honour. And he said, you cannot teach people to not not have prejudices uh, of various kinds. It could be Religious or racial, or maybe just economic snobbery, or whatever. Pe- people have prejudices. Uh, he says the important thing is that you teach people to not kill people. That that's what's important. Okay. And yeah. don't bother don't bother trying to, you know, somehow eradicate every prejudice. It's okay to be prejudiced as long as you've got this strong moral conviction that it's wrong to kill people and it's wrong to destroy them and to harm their businesses and to harm their property. But if you happen to dislike a particular group of people, argued George Jonas, that's not the end of the world. In fact, it's inevitable. It's part of human nature that we have prejudices. No, so what's scary Saturday. here about what's going on mm. in Canada is you've got the government passing laws, uh, right? Because you've got these uh, – it's, it's the government that has said that it is impossible for an unvaccinated restaurant owner to open up his business to everybody. He's not allowed to do that. Mm. He must, by law, impose all of these discriminatory, unscientific provisions, yeah. And that's one of the things that we're challenging in the court action that has been filed in Ontario and by the time this podcast comes out it will be publicly released that the Justice Center is suing Ontario over vaccine passports with other provinces to follow. Because the problem is the government action. If this was merely on a level of personal decisions and personal prejudice and, the, you know, the vaccinated majority banning together and saying we're going to have our vaccinated only restaurants and the unvaccinated are not allowed in. if it was merely on a social level, we could live with that. Uh, you'd have a minority of restaurants that were open to everybody. And, you know, with time, things oh, yeah, would change. Attitudes would change.
0: Aren't they relying uh, on private industry to...
1: Enforce their mandate? Coercing methods? it. Coercing. You can get in trouble, okay. uh, certainly in Ontario, because I've, I've looked at the statement of claim. But certainly in Ontario and, and in other places, if you as a businessman do not enforce these unscientific, arbitrary, uh, bigoted government edicts, if you do not enforce them, you yourself will be in big trouble and you'll be liable to uh, big fines that will yeah. triple your business. Oh, well, so the government objected. has...
0: I was objecting to you saying we could live with that. I don't think. No, we, sure.
1: again, if the government, no, we could, if, if there was no government law that oh, okay. required every business in Ontario. Oh, I see. And okay. every business in Canada, mm-hmm. this is uh, the distinction I'm trying to make is the distinction between a social prejudice whereby vaccinated people feel that they are morally superior to the unvaccinated because that they are less likely to spread diseases. And they have that belief. And based on that belief, the vaccinated say you know that we're the restaurants that we own we're not going to allow unvaccinated people in and the gyms that we own we're not going to allow unvaccinated okay. people in if it was merely a social prejudice it would be you know sure i'm un- undesirable but ultimately all the unvaccinated people uh which could be a fifth or a quarter of the population or or maybe more depending on how accurate these government records are you know it's not impossible for government reports on vaccination rates to be exaggerated. Uh, It's not impossible. Anyway, Mm. I don't have any evidence one way or the other, although I have good reasons to not believe government. But what's happening now is not just a social prejudice where the vaccinated restaurant owner says, unvaccinated people are not allowed into my business. Mm. That I could live with. No, this is government coercion. Every restaurant must bar, must ban ban, the unvaccinated. So it is. It is state-sanctioned bigotry, unscientific bigotry against a minority, and it is the state that is promoting the vilification. It is politicians like Alberta Premier Jason Kenney, Quebec Premier Legault, Prime Minister Trudeau, publicly vilifying the unvaccinated. That is what I find incredibly scary right, uh, right now. It's when the government gets involved and forces that prejudice turns the prejudice into law
0: gotcha okay got the distinction i just want to shove something in here regarding the vaccine mandate being postponed a month in quebec uh, because mm, i saw this beautiful story.
1: some good news some good news uh yeah uh, but uh, my, my observation
0: this week. is uh, because this seemed to go unstated in all the stories that i saw about it that is the mainstream media stories Quebec is the one province in Canada that knows very well what staff shortages can produce because the horrific response that they had back at the beginning of the pandemic where in the nursing homes uh, so many staff walked away, they know very directly what the staff shortages can produce. So I'm not surprised at all that they would postpone it. I have a feeling They're going to come to some kind of accommodation based on that experience. We'll see what happens. I mean, I don't know the future, but I know that they, out of all the provinces in Canada, experienced devastating results from staff shortages back early in the pandemic. So kudos for them for postponing it. Now I'm hopefully uh, going to uh, be applauding them in a month or so for eliminating it. But at any rate, I, I, there's one thing now that uh, we're just coming up to the end of the show here. I, we had some kind of judiciary notice out of BC that uh, I see that uh, you received a, a letter on. Do you want to just quickly introduce that and tell us about it? Because it should be noted on our yeah. podcast.
1: I'll, I'll add one detail on Quebec. So yeah. just, just okay. as some background information, the Quebec government had threatened the healthcare workers that if they were not vaccinated by uh, Friday, October 15th, they would lose their jobs but the numbers in one report it referenced 14,000 uh, workers that would be forced into unemployment in a system that was already short-staffed. Uh, in a CBC article, it says that 80 operating rooms are already closed due to staffing shortage. So they're already in trouble with the staffing shortage. Yeah. And now, um, interestingly too, the, the, uh, the CBC article mentioned 22,000 uh, employees, whereas the um, Canadian press mentioned fourteen thousand. I mean, but either way, it's it's a big number fourteen thousand people or twenty two thousand people not showing up for work in the long term care homes in in the hospitals. It's uh, so I'm really thankful. I hope that uh, these fourteen thousand or twenty two thousand people stick to their guns and come November fifteenth, the Quebec government will again have to back down. And that's what I'm. Uh, that's what I'm hopeful for. I right, know. Oh, yeah. Okay. So the BC oh, Courts yeah. uh, announcement. Uh, and it's a joint announcement from the Court of Appeal for British Columbia, and the Supreme Court of British Columbia, and the Provincial Court of British Columbia, each with their own crest. And on October the eighth, it proudly announces judiciary and staff COVID nineteen vaccination and says all judges and other judicial officers in the Court of Appeal Supreme Court and Provincial Court of British Columbia have received a full series of accepted COVID-19 vaccines. I guess they're not taking the fake ones. Or a full (laughs) series of a combination of accepted COVID-19 vaccines approved by the Government of Canada. Wow. It must be good, right? If it's approved by the Government of Canada, my goodness. 100% compliance. Yeah. Domating all judicial United and writer. court staff, all <laughs> judicial and court staff, as well as service providers uh, accessing the secure non public areas of all courthouses, will be required to have received the full series uh, of accepted COVID 19 uh, vaccines commencing November 22nd, 2021. So the judges have all had two shots, and now there's kind of a, a threat there a very direct, mm. blatant, naked threat that. You better get jabbed with the experimental mRNA substance that has not been subjected to any long-term safety testing. I'm adding those words; they're not in the judicial yes, notice. I know. <laughs> by by November twenty second. This is consistent with the recent BC public service announcement. Oh well, well and, and well, of course that couldn't be wrong. I mean, if the government of British Columbia is forcing all of the BC civil servants to get injected with the experimental substance by November twenty second. That couldn't possibly be wrong. If so it's now the consistent, are it must follow. be right. Yeah, so consistent, consistent with what the BC government is doing. Now we're doing it too. Oh, okay. yes. All public servant employees, including court staff, will be vaccinated. Okay. Yes. Signed by the Chief Justice of the BC Court of Appeal, Robert Bowman, and the Chief Justice of the BC Supreme Court, Christopher Hinkson, and the Chief Judge of the BC Provincial Court, Melissa Gillespie. Well, there you got it. Uh, so how are you going to get a fair hearing in British Columbia, I have to ask, if you're going in there to say, well, um, we've got some medical, scientific, factual uh, issues with this. That vaccine manufacturers never said it wouldn't reduce the spread. We see people uh, we see people in the United Kingdom and all over the world, double vaccinated, are in hospital, they're sick, they're dying. Uh, the vaccine is not stopping the Delta variant Uh, The vaccine is causing myocarditis in young males. I mean, I don't know if these courts have any young males amongst their staff. It's not a really helpful uh, target for affirmative action programs. But uh, anyway, what are you going to say that, you know, young males who are not threatened by COVID are being required to get injected by an experimental substance that thus far has been shown to cause myocarditis, which is a serious condition, which is inflammation of the heart. How are you going to put these arguments before the courts in British Columbia when you dispute the need for mandatory vaccination?
0: Well, you can put them before the court, but probably the court will compel you to say the government line, as they did in the Arthur Pawlowski case, that compelled speech there. So.
1: At any rate, we talk
0: about that one next week. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, that that that's coming up. We got uh, we got a few topics that we didn't actually get to here uh, in our long list of things that are happening. But great, thanks for being with us uh, for episode thirty-five of Justice with John Carpe. Look forward to speaking to you next week. Talk to you
1: next week, Kevin.